2: If you give a damn about the business of making things in America, you got to support the companies who are doing it right. Go to American Dash Slash Mike to get twenty percent off your first order. That's American Dash Giant dot com Slash Mike. You got problems
1: that you ought to be concerned with. You don't know how you're supposed to earn it or what to do with it or how to.
3: Hello, and welcome to the voice of the socialist revolution, or as it was previously known, Bad with Money with Gabby Dunn. I'm just kidding. We haven't changed the name of the show, and I don't know if I'm sold on the whole socialist revolution thing, but we're getting there, because this is episode three of our new season, and so far we've explored the complex systemic pitfalls of student loans and medical bills. And today, because apparently I don't have enough anxiety in my life, I've decided to tackle credit cards. Or maybe I should say, get revenge on credit cards? Because I don't know about you guys, but my credit card is basically trying to kill me. And I just applied for another one. Oops. I got a credit card when I was living in New York right after college, and I got talked into it by my parents um, because they said I needed to build credit. But I, I had no idea what that meant, and I had no idea what getting a credit card was. I was mostly terrified because I thought it was bad to spend money you didn't have. Um, up until then, I had only had debit cards. I was told, just get it, and it'll be good for you to have a credit history, even though no one ever told me why that was good and then I got approved for like a $5,000 credit limit. That was more money than I'd ever seen in my life. And I was like, well, there's no way that I'd spend $5,000. Cut 2 you've spent $5,000, quote unquote, spent. You've spent it on your card. I guess I just went into it never knowing how they really worked. I should, you know, try to figure out how they actually work. Because the credit card companies are getting rich on our ignorance. Nobody ever explained how they work to me, and I'm willing to bet that nobody's ever explained it to you either. And as we're going to learn from my three guests on the show today, the idea behind credit cards is actually really simple. It's the incredibly intricate ways that they weave themselves into our economic psychology that are complex and sinister. I bet by the end of this episode, you'll find yourself wanting to pull all your credit cards out of your wallet and chop them up with a scissor. That is, if you don't already want to do that. But guess what, that doesn't even make the debt disappear. Before we get to the scissor attack inducing part of the show, I wanted to begin by finding someone to give me the basic idiot proof primer on credit cards that my parents never did, and that none of my schools ever did, and that the fucking credit card companies certainly didn't offer when they lure you into applying for them, probably because they assume your parents or your school already have. So let's meet Laura Adams. She's a personal finance expert and the host of her own podcast, which is called Money Girl. And listen, you guys know me. You know I'm not afraid to ask stupid questions, which is why I started this interview with perhaps the dumbest question yet. What's a credit card?
4: It's a piece of plastic that you keep in your wallet that's been around since the 1920s. And at that time, companies like oil companies were using them to give consumers a way to pay for goods and uh, do that in an easy and convenient way, sort of buying, buying things now, paying for it later. And then later on, they became very popular in the 60s. The credit card that we know today started back then in the 60s and became really popular in the 70s. And it's something that allows you to revolve debt. That basically means the account stays open as long as you want it to. So, for instance, like if you get a car loan, it might have a three-year term. You know when it begins, you know when it ends, and the debt's over. Well, with a credit card, it's never over. It revolves from month to month companies decided this was an easy way to give people the ability to buy more of their products. So initially it was just buying gas from the gas company, but then later on the banks got involved and the uh, the banks were able to extend credit card relationships to merchants so that stores could be able to take a credit card. And then what happens is they would immediately get the money from the bank. So you pay the the store, they get the money from the bank, and then the bank deducts a little bit of, of a percentage of each transaction from the merchant. So they end up making a lot of money really on the merchant side of, of these transactions.
3: What information do they take for you when you apply for a credit card and I know there's like all this stuff about like they're selling the information or they're they're using your information to target ads at you and stuff like that.
4: Yeah. So the main thing that they're looking at when you apply is credit because it's what's called an unsecured debt. And so that means that there's nothing behind that debt. So if you compare that to, let's say, a house, when you get a mortgage to buy a house, that mortgage is tied to the home. If you don't pay the mortgage, the lender can come and foreclose on you and and take your home eventually. With a credit card, that debt that you have with the company is not secured, it's not backed by anything other than your promise to pay your bill each month. And so because of that, they really look at your credit very heavily. They're looking at whether you have a history of paying bills on time, um, how many other credit accounts you have. They're also looking at your job history. They do like to see some stability. They want to see that you've got some income uh, to prove that you've got the ability to, to pay
3: but they you get all those things in the mail, you know, from different offers. Is that like is the credit, do you know where your information's going? Like is the credit card company giving sort of giving out your address and stuff like that? or
4: In a lot of cases, they are doing what's called a soft approval. So they may have looked at your credit report. And they are allowed to do that. They can, they can take a peek, and it's called a soft inquiry. It doesn't hurt your credit when they do that. They can look at your history and know, okay, Gabby, you look like a great candidate for a new card. Let's send you an offer in the mail in the hopes that you will apply for it. Now, you can actually opt out of those. A lot of people don't know that. But if you don't want to get those offers in the mail, you can actually opt out of those. There's a site called optoutprescreen.com where you can say, I don't want to get any offers in the mail for credit cards or insurance or or any pre-approved offers. And the key is... You really only need one to two cards. You know, I would recommend having one from one major company like a Visa, MasterCard, maybe one from another major company like a Discover or Amex, kind of spread out your your history with different companies and showing that you can use those cards responsibly, even if it's just two of them. That's plenty.
3: Yeah, I was going to say, is like American Express really more elite or is all this stuff just kind of like marketing?
4: they are different mainly on the merchant side. So for us as consumers, really all we need to care about is what are the interest rates that we're getting? And also, how do we want to use the card? You know, there are high interest rate cards that pay a lot of rewards, and they can be worth it if you pay off your balance every month. But if you don't pay off your balance every month, what you really want is a very low interest card that maybe doesn't come with as many bells and whistles. So from a consumer side, I wouldn't care quite so much about who the bank is or what the logo is on the card, as much as the terms that you're being offered.
3: So if credit cards have been around since the 20s, and people who even come from backgrounds where it's not like very low income, and they have access to all this stuff, like what accounts for how so many people don't understand credit cards. I know that they just don't teach financial literacy in schools or whatever it is, but like they seem so ubiquitous and like it seems like a lot of people have no idea what they do or what they're for.
4: Yeah, it's a great question. And I do think it truly is a lack of education all around. We don't have it in the high schools. We don't have it in college. I mean, I got a master's in business. My MBA had very little about personal finance. And, you know, that was one of the reasons that I ended up getting into this line of work. I think that without that basic education into how these financial instruments work and what are the pros, what are the cons, and people also seeing real world examples of what can happen if you kind of let a credit card go wild in your life. I know a lot of parents don't teach it to kids. Mine didn't teach it to me, not because they didn't understand it, but because I guess they just thought I'd figure it out. We try to get more and more financial education in schools, but it doesn't seem to happen. It seems like there's always resistance to it because people feel like, okay, if we bring in financial information, then what are we going to give up? You know, are we going to give up history or English or what are we going to give up in order to have this? Until it becomes just really mainstream in our education, I think people are going to struggle. This is very entry-level information that really all of us should be masters of before we get out there and make mistakes that we can't reverse.
3: Are most people carrying around some kind of credit card debt, or is it just like, and it's this thing that like nobody talks about? or Because it's different than other debt where people are like, or like medical debt or student loans where they're like, well, you know, something happened or you, you used it for something. But people with credit card debt, it's like, it seems to be the most tist-tist about.
4: Yeah, there are two different types of people with credit card debt. They're called the transactors and the revolvers. The transactors are the people who are actually using them correctly. They're making charges that they are then paying off in full 100% every month. And then the revolvers are those who are adding debt. They are letting debt accumulate and roll over from month to month and maybe just making the minimum payment. But the statistics that I've seen show that of the folks that are revolving debt, they're keeping it over and over, month after month, year after year, the average balance right now is about $5,000 per borrower. For somebody who is paying off their balance in full each month, those transactors, they're actually using credit cards to their advantage because they're probably racking up a lot of points, a lot of rewards. And that's why they're putting all their transactions on that card. But then they are savvy enough to pay off the bill in full each month. So as long as you're doing that, you don't pay one penny of interest on that card. And so you are really getting the best out of the card if you can do that. Because they only
3: make money if we carry debt. So it's like this weird thing of like you're supposed to have credit, but then they make money by us – like screwing up. So they're just sort of like sitting back being like, I hope some people screw up.
4: It's very lucrative for the banks, no doubt. (laughs) And (laughs) certainly, you know, we are we are helped when we need a credit card. It's great to have it. But the key is not to get in over our heads. And uh, unfortunately, it takes a long time for for that to sink in with people. I know it did for me.
3: Your personal story is interesting to me because it's um, You are an expert, but also you have like a personal story with credit cards, too. Isn't that how you got into finance? Was like too much credit card use or?
4: Absolutely. You know, I was just like everybody else who starts out, who really doesn't understand the ramifications of debt and getting into debt using credit cards is so easy. It's always been easy, but it seems like maybe it's easier than ever now.
3: Why were you using credit cards so much and when, when did it sink in?
4: You know, I think for me, I was, I don't want to say I was spoiled when I was at home, but my parents were upper middle class. I remember being able to have a lot of clothes and a lot of things that I wanted pretty easily. And when I got out in the real world after I graduated from school and had my first job, I kind of expected just to continue that lifestyle. I just thought, you know, I should have the clothes that I want, I should have the vacation that I want, the car. And it, it really didn't occur to me that, you know, I may not really deserve these things yet. I, I'm i not earning enough to justify these high expenses. So it took me a long time to really understand that I couldn't live that same lifestyle on my own. And that was a hard thing for me to, to take. I think also I was Dating my now husband. We were then long distance, and that was a tough time. You know, it was, I was missing him. I didn't really have a whole lot of friends, and I think going shopping really filled a gap for me. It filled that need of going and doing something fun and doing something exciting. And sure enough, I'd come back with a bag full of stuff, you know, from the mall that I couldn't afford. It was just a lifestyle adjustment that maybe. You know, somebody should have sat me down and said, hey, you know, when you get out and you're only making X amount of dollars with your very first job, you're going to need to cut back.
3: You hear that, deadbeats? Somebody should have sat Laura down and said, hey, cool it with all that money you're putting on your credit card or else you're going to wake up one day and find yourself at the foot of Mount Debt, which is the tallest mountain you've ever seen. And every time you try to climb it, you're just going to get buried in an avalanche called high interest charges. So consider that interview with Laura to be the stern talking to you've probably never gotten from anyone else. Except she was pretty friendly and not all that stern. She has such a cute little accent. Of course, if it was that simple, we could have just ended the episode right there. But it's never that simple on Bad With Money. And after the break, we're going to look at one of the most tempting traps credit card companies have devised for us. Rewards points. Are they really rewards? Are they just tricks? Stay tuned. So if you've got a credit card or six in your wallet, chances are at least one of them offers some kind of reward for using it. Airline miles, hotel points, cash back. The card companies offer you these things as a way of saying, Hey, consumer, you're great. You know what you're doing with credit cards. And if you spend tons of money with this one, we'll say thank you by giving you some presents. Which, of course, makes you go, Sure, I love presents. I'll worry about that whole knowing what I'm doing thing when I'm on one of my free flights to a place I probably can't afford to go in the first place. But it doesn't have to be this way. Mandy Woodruff is the executive editor of magnifymoney.com and the co-host of the Brown Ambition podcast. And she's figured out how to make rewards points work for her. As we learn from Laura, the key is understanding how the system actually works. Do you know, like, why credit card companies started offering rewards points or what, what that was in response to?
5: Oh, I mean, it's a great revenue stream for them. I mean, so you think about it. Whenever you swipe your credit card at a restaurant or, like, the gas station, the credit card company is getting a cut of that um, fee that they're charging the restaurant or gas station to use to charge your credit card, right? So um, if they give you, like, a cash back percentage as a reward, um, you're actually helping them by spending your money at that restaurant or retail place because they're earning that cash back. They're basically giving you a little bit of sh- revenue share with what they're making they're encouraging you to spend and the more that you spend the more money you make them
3: so every time you use your credit card it's giving money to the credit card company
5: oh definitely you ever been to like a um, like a mom-and-pop shop and they don't take credit cards and they say cash only that's because they're trying to avoid that transaction fee that they get from credit card companies so yeah totally every time you swipe Um, that company is paying a little bit of profit toward to your credit card company. I think the points are again just a way for them to encourage us to keep spending on their cards because like I said every time I for example I have I have an amazing card it gives me uh, three percent back whenever I go to restaurants so I always use it when I go to restaurants and they're basically it's it's sort of like you scratch my back I'll scratch yours like I get the points from going to a restaurant but they also get the loyalty like I'm only going to use that card because it gives me the best rewards rate and because I'm using it more often that means they're going to make more money in the end
3: okay so you're getting married in like a week and yeah oh the big yeah. the, <laughs>
5: you okay <laughs> so I know a lot about credit cards
3: <laughs> yeah so I was gonna say so the big story has been that you like used all the points to pay or you use a credit card to pay for the wedding and then are using the rewards points for the honeymoon can you explain that whole story
5: well, yeah, definitely. I mean, so from the get-go, uh, we never wanted to put our wedding on credit. That was never the idea. Like, I'm not into that. I, the whole the whole concept for me was always about let's have a wedding that we can afford and that we're going to pay cash for. So I'd actually been saving for several years for a big purchase. And when the wedding came up, I was like, okay, we have the money in the bank, but let's actually get something out of this. So I took out um, a couple of rewards cards. I started with the Chase Sapphire Preferred, and then when they brought out that blockbuster, like, amazing Chase Sapphire Reserve card several months later, I got that one. And what we did is we put the expenses, like, on the credit card just to get the bonus points, and we paid it off with all the cash we had saved, like, right away. And we were able to do a a whole honeymoon to Italy, flights um, for Italy and Spain for, I think, 120,000 points.
3: I mean, the points just seem so arbitrary. Like, are the credit card companies risking anything by offering them?
5: Of course they wouldn't be doing something if it wasn't going to work out in their favor. And like Mm -hmm. I said, they are trapping, trapping is like a strong word, but like tying you and making you a loyal customer and you're going to use your card again and again and again. And sadly enough, some people will run into issues and some people will start revolving or keeping a balance on their card and they're not going to pay it off. And then they're going to get slapped with, like, 16 to 24% interest rates. And that's Mm -hmm. major, major revenue for these credit card companies. So I'm sure they've done the math and they've figured out, okay, well, if only, like, 20% of people carry a balance, then we're going to make tons of money. And the people like Mandy who are paying their cards off who aren't making us any money, it's fine. Like, we're still going to be fine
3: so um someone who isn't you what are the most like classic traps that you could fall into it's just being taken by this shiny card and then not being able to pay it back essentially
5: definitely i mean look at the minimum required to spend and then look at how much you spend normally and if they if it's a lot more than what you're used to spending then don't do it i mean chances are you're not going to be able to afford it and like i said you're just going to get trapped with a credit card with like a double digit interest rate and then you're, you're the one losing because you're paying this company. It's like they've got you, you know? Like I think what people don't do, and they should, is that they get their credit card and they're like, oh, hey, I got $5,000. That must mean I can afford $5,000. And they go and spend it. But, like, you're screwing yourself because if you can't, you should really just give yourself your own credit limit. Like forget what the bank says you can afford and just sit down and say, hey, what I can afford to put on this card is $1,000 per month. And that is my limit. And if I go over that, then all I'm doing is giving the bank money because they're Mm. going to be charging interest on money that, you know, I can't pay off.
3: What would be good for someone who's getting, like, their first credit card, let's say?
5: Oh, yeah. Well, I think most major credit cards are offering some kind of, like, cash back. So I think you should definitely be looking for a cash back, because, like, why not? You get a little something... You know, for your spending, but there are some great no-fee cashback credit cards. Um, I like the City Double Cash card. It doesn't have any annual fee, and you get one percent back when you spend, and then another one percent when you pay off your bill or when you pay back the card, which is like a great incentive to actually pay your bill, and then you get double cashback. Um, and it's one of the only cards to give you double that don't require an annual fee. Um, another thing I would say is, you know, like Magnify Money, we do this lecture. We, we talk to college students. Um, we go to this school in Brooklyn a lot, and we, at Brooklyn College, and we always ask them, like, hey, where did you get your jeans at? Or where did you get your, you know, iPhone at? And they're like, oh, you know, I, I, I researched it on Amazon, or I, you know, looked at a bunch of blogs, my, did my homework. And then we ask them, like, you know, how did you pick which bank you use? And their answer is always like, oh, yeah, my mom told me this is a good bank or my dad always uses this bank. And I'm like, you shouldn't let your parents' choices, especially like financial choices, like you shouldn't just go with them um, because there's, you know, they may not be making the, the decisions that work for you, like their bank may not be the best bank for you.
3: Well, because it's terrifying. It's terrifying to look at like you're, I always would think that I was going to open and look at the bank information and be like, oh, I don't understand any of
5: this. You know, that's why sites like Magnify Money exist. Like we have this amazing savings and checking account tool where literally you just put in what your zip code is and we'll tell you exactly what is around you and what you can access and where the best you know, perks are, we make it really, really easy to understand. And that kind of stuff didn't exist when I was looking for my credit card when I was in college. And that was yeah. only like 10 years ago. And that's how I found myself with like a really bad, you know, Bank of America, no reward, high interest rate credit card. Um, but I think that like Magnify Money and sites like us are really leveling the play, playing field when it comes to like informing people about the better choices out there
3: yeah it just seems very terrifying because it feels like a trick it feels like a credit card is a trick and then you get a credit card and then they're like ha, we gotcha like it all just feels very like toxic and scary and like they benefit from the people who aren't like you who can't get it so they're just like perpetuating this broken system where they're like most people aren't going to be smart so haha got them
5: it is sort of a trap and I think that It's so much responsibility on, like, our shoulders, like I said. I mean, they're going to give you one limit, but you have to tell yourself how much you can afford. And it takes work, you know. It takes a little bit of thought, and it takes looking down and seeing what you can afford. And they're dangling a little carrot in front of you, and they're like, come use me. Come use my card. We're going to give you 2% back if you go to McDonald's. Um, And they know that you're going to become loyal whenever they give you a little bit. Um yeah, it's definitely a way for them to make money. At the end of the day, that's what banks are in the business of doing. You know, they want to they want to make you feel good and give you a little something something, but they're not doing something for nothing.
3: More bad with money coming up after the break. So you remember earlier when I mentioned that there would be a scissor attack inducing part of the show? That's this part. It turns out that the credit part of credit cards has some pretty twisted roots. And I mean twisted in the sense of being gnarly and incomprehensible, as well as devious and evil. Because in order to determine who gets credit, credit card companies have to make a series of decisions about the value we offer to the cause of perpetuating the capitalist system in which they thrive. And shock of all shocks, the way those decisions get made is absolutely ridiculous and racist and sexist. So here to tell us about that is Lillian Karabek, host of the Oh My Dollar podcast. Get out your scissor sharpeners. On the very basic level for people that don't know, because a lot of this podcast is just asking the most obvious questions, um, what is a credit score?
6: A credit score is attempting to put a number on you about how much of a risk you are to lenders the lower your credit score, the higher a risk you're considered. They start around 300, and they go, depending on the score, up to 750 or 850. Um, So this would apply to a mortgage or a car. Um, It would also theoretically apply to if you wanted to open up a new credit card. So credit score, a lot of people think it's a singular thing, but actually it's private companies that have kind of secret algorithms that uh, determine in a number how much of a risk you are. This idea of credit scores and credit cards are relatively recent. It used to be that credit was something that was given to you on a store by store basis. So it was all based on your personal reputation and relationship with the store owner. So essentially, like this is how all of the kind of discriminatory history happened, which is that, you know, your race, your gender, your religion, whether or not you belong to a certain club, whether or not you cheated on your wife, that all could factor in whether or not you would be extended credit. So the credit score was an attempt to kind of Find a way to remove all of these individual factors and make a large system for it.
3: So what kind of things would be used against you and what kind of things would be used for you?
6: The number one most important thing with credit scores is supposedly your repayment history, right? So they want to know if you have had debt extended to you in the past, do you repay it on time? But where people get into a really tricky situation is that you actually have to have some sort of credit extended to you in order to have a credit score. If you're perfect, you always pay your rent on time, you always pay your utilities on time, but you've never taken out a credit card and never taken out any debt, then you won't have a good credit score or even necessarily any credit history at all. And
3: why do you need a credit history?
6: I mean, theoretically, the main thing that you want credit history for is if you want to borrow money. Right. Mm-hmm. So, if you want to get a mortgage on a house, if you want to buy a house, you need a good credit score, um, and you need it if you want to get access to a credit card or a if you want to finance a car. So, theoretically, right, like credit score shouldn't matter at all if you aren't looking to take out any more debt. Um, but the really frustrating part is is that credit score is now used as a proxy for whether or not you are. A good risk generally. And so credit score is used to look at employment in a ton of states. An employer can check your um, credit report and could deny you employment because you have a bad credit score. But it also can be used for like if you have a medical procedure that's not covered by health insurance, it can be used to determine if you could get that something like LASIK or breast reduction surgery. One of the number one biggest things in where I live where it's really hard to get an apartment is it's used to determine whether or not you can rent an apartment.
3: This seems like a crazy game that we're all playing.
6: It is a crazy game. What's particularly crazy, so there's, there's a ton of problems with credit and uh, access to it. You are less likely to have access to credit if you are uh, black or Latino. Um, and you're less likely to have a good credit score if you are female. This whole system was designed to get rid of that. And that's what's hilarious about it, right? So the whole reason that we have credit scores and credit reporting is because of the Equal Credit Opportunity Act, which in 1974 was meant to say that you couldn't determine someone's credit worthiness based on their race, their color, their religion, national origin, age, gender, sex, and you were only able to do it based on their credit score. And all of those things are absent from a credit score. But the super frustrating part is that they just essentially found tons of other ways to determine credit worthiness. One of the reasons that women tend to have worse credit scores is, is that um, women often don't have credit history in their own names. So the length of your credit history is a, a big factor. The Essentially, usually if you are older, you will have a better credit score because you will have a longer history with a lender, which means that you've Theoretically paid back your debt on time every time for a longer period of time, but women often don't have credit histories in their own name either because they lost their credit histories when they got married and changed their names and this is the most insidious creditors report accounts shared by married couples in the husband's name only so even if it's a joint account. Often, creditors will only report it to the husband's credit report. So even if they've paid on time every time for 20 years on a mortgage, it'll only end up on the husband's credit report.
3: What? Why?
6: Uh, because the patriarchy.
3: Uh, <laughs> thank you. <laughs> you, you uh, That's the reason. I mean, I feel like a lot of stuff that we've said on this show can be summed up as like, oh, because capitalism and the patriarchy. Yeah. How is it built up against people of color?
6: Oh, my God. So, I mean, that's probably the main thing that is disproportionate in credit scores. So if you're from a lower income minority neighborhood, it's more likely that you try to access credit in ways that don't use the credit score. So subprime lenders for mortgages and um, things like payday loans don't check your credit score. And those things are more likely to be used by minority populations, mainly because they're more heavily marketed towards minority populations. Um, Have you heard of redlining before? No. So redlining was a very pervasive practice. And a lot of people would argue is still true. But essentially, in the 1930s, um, there was a practice where they went and looked at 239 cities. And uh, the homeowners loan corporation drew kind of maps where they said, these are areas where real estate investments are a good idea. And they, they were red lines on a map that said, OK, this area is not worth investing in because it's more likely that if we fund mortgages in this area, they won't repay. Of course, those neighborhoods are predominantly black inner centered inner city neighborhoods. So the practice of redlining was the practice of essentially saying we won't give a mortgage to black people, but they did it based on these geographic areas. Um, and so redlining is part of what ended up with such highly, highly segregated inner cities. And that was just predominantly due to access to credit. Like if you were a black person in the 1950s, you could not get a mortgage.
3: So in the 70s, that was meant to curb that. But then it it actually harmed it more.
6: There's a ton of reasons why it didn't necessarily get better. One is just plain old fashioned racism. There's also a ton of situations in which African Americans and Latinos are less likely to have access to these credit building opportunities. So, you know, a credit card is one of the main ways that you can build credit. All of these other forms of credit, which are renting or paying your utilities every month, these things that you do pay on time every single time that are more likely to be the kind of things that low-income households are definitely doing don't get reported to the credit bureaus. So only having access to these credit cards, these are the only things that get reported to the credit bureaus. And if you're accessing something like payday checking or a pawn shop, those don't get reported to the credit bureaus at all either. So this means that people that might actually be very credit worthy that are outside of this kind of traditional banking system end up paying huge interest rates and often end up with these really subprime, really unattractive sort of lending.
3: Okay, I'm literally sitting here with like my head on my hand. So, (laughs) like, (laughs) um, freaking out. Um, Okay, So, so is it true that you shouldn't check your credit score very often?
6: No, it does not harm your credit to check it as long as you're checking it. So every time someone else checks your credit score it's viewed as you're asking them for credit, right? Because theoretically it's initiated by you. So if you go and say, hey, I want this credit card and they check your credit score, that's you asking for new credit. So it will ding your credit score a little bit. Um, but if you go and check your credit score, it doesn't hurt it because it's considered a self-inquiry. It's, it's, here's the reason I don't recommend checking your credit score on a regular basis though. It changes all the time. It's based on like, Every every single month that information gets updated, and your credit score is just a capturing of a moment in time, and there is literally no reason to freak out or worry about your credit score on a regular basis unless you are going to go out and look for more debt.
3: So you're saying don't worry about it, but like if you have a bad credit score, don't people freak out about that or don't if you don't have a credit score at all it just matters you think if you're just if you are planning on taking out a lot of debt in the form of like a mortgage or some big big purchase
6: no it matters if you want to take out debt for anything um because it's essentially it's a measure of whether or not you're credit worthy so one of the things to understand is the kind of things that are taking out debt even when you don't think about them so like contract smartphones are are an extension of credit and a lot of people don't realize that Um, One of the reasons why I think being aware of your credit score is really important is I live in a city where the rental vacancy is below 1%. It's really hard to find an apartment. And because of that, my credit score is used to evaluate me for apartments. Um, And this is one of the damned of the do, damned if you don't, right? I've never taken out debt of any type, luckily. And um, because of that, I, you know, for a long time, I had to actually work to make sure that I did have credit cards open just so that I was building up a history. And because of that, it took kind of a while for my credit score to gain traction. And it's not because I wanted to take out debt in the future. It's just because I wanted to make sure that I, you know, wouldn't be a problem with me getting into an apartment.
3: Student loans don't count, right?
6: Student loans very much count towards your credit history. Yes. However... However, student loans are one of the few instances where they don't check your credit score in order to extend them to you, which is...
3: Oh, my God! um, So they don't check your credit score to extend them to you. However, they count towards your credit score.
6: Yes. I mean theoretically this is great, right? If you do have student loans and you're repaying them on time every time, it's going to be great for your credit score over the long term. Yeah. Um if you miss them or default on them, that shows that you're less of a good credit risk and therefore it's going to negatively affect your credit. So, I mean student loans are one of the biggest problems for my generation um with just generally, right? Like student loans are a huge problem. You mm-hmm. talked about that on the show recently. Um but student loans are one of the largest effect because Millennials are actually very, very likely to be scared of credit cards but have a lot of student loan debt, which means that they have a huge amount of debt and they don't have any extra. So when you essentially if you get an $1,000 credit limit on a credit card and you you know pay it off every single month, you'll have a zero percent utilization. Mm-hmm. But it's average across all of your accounts. So if you have a $20,000 student loan that you're repaying, that's considered $20,000 of debt. And until you pay it completely off, it's going to count against your utilization. So if you don't have something like a credit card that uh, you're, you know, not charging up to the maximum on, your credit score is going to be lower. Debt is one of the best marketed myths that we've been sold in the past 40 years. It's a beautifully marketed product. And you have to understand that it's a product, right? Mm -hmm. Until the 1950s, there was no brand names of Visa and MasterCard. American Express wasn't a brand. Now, debt is one of the best marketed products. Victoria's Secret makes more off credit card financing than they do bras, as do most car manufacturers at this point. And we're taught that debt is the only way to get ahead. And we've built in this system where even if you are good with money, so like even if you never take out any debt and you always pay your bills on time, if you don't do it in a way that contributes to your credit history, a.k.a. having a credit card, then you're seen as bad with money because you don't have a good credit score. It was meant to make things better, and it made things worse.
3: (laughs) So, am I saying that no one should use credit cards? No. But the next time you're about to swipe one, stop for a moment and ask yourself if you can actually afford what you're buying and whether it's worth the potential of months or even years of brutal financial penalties. And also think about the fact that a portion of whatever charge you're about to make is going to a massive conglomerate that exists because someone figured out that people would buy more shit if the conglomerate made it ridiculously easy and offered shiny rewards. It's tough, because sometimes you don't have any other way to pay for things. And I remember absolutely falling back on credit cards for things that you shouldn't fall back on them for like groceries using it for things that aren't extravagances using it for things that you actually need in your daily life because you're not sure where other money is going to come from I've paid rent, I've used my credit card to pay rent that's ill-advised but I did it because how else was I going to not pay rent? so you're fucked if you do, you're fucked if you don't but At the very least, this episode should serve as the talking to that you should have gotten in high school. That you should have had a teacher do, or that there should have been a class on, or that your parents should have given you. I mean, just being informed about all this stuff before you go into credit card debt, for me, would have been nice. Thanks for listening to Bad With Money. If you like the show, please rate and review us in iTunes, and be sure to tell all your friends who are bad with money that this is the show for them. Also, tell your friends who don't wince every time they open the app they use to pay their credit card bill, squint so they don't have to see the total amount they owe, and just pay the minimum and try not to think about it for the next month. We're part of the Panoply Network. Our producer is Sam Dingman. Laura Mayer is Panoply's director of production, and Andy Bowers is our chief content officer. Original music for our show was composed by Zach Sherwin, Mike Kaplan, and Jack Dolgen. Our theme song is performed by Sam Barbera, and our show art is by Cameron Glavin and Dan Blondell. I'm Gabby Dunn. You guys know that by now. See you next week.